Hey, what's up, everyone? You are on the Eden Podcast, and we are so glad that you're here. I hope that the next 30 minutes will help you to become the person that God always dreamed you could be. Let's get started. Well, good morning, Eden. It is uh, truly is a pleasure for uh, us to be here um, with you and to be invited into this series that you're doing, Are You Okay? And uh, I've had chance to listen to all four weeks of Daniel's messages, profoundly important and uh, significant in our lives. I loved how you started out in the conversation around the pace of life and how um, there's something more uh, for us to do with our lives and simply increase the pace as we get further and deeper, uh, deeper into it. And then you, <clears throat> you looked at this idea of the importance of the soul and, and its place in your life. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then Daniel talked about these means for caring for our soul, this, this idea of a Sabbath, a rest, and then, then this idea of quiet and, and solitude and its place in, in caring for, for our, our soul. And so when, when he asked us if we'd be a part of the series, we were particularly excited because at, at our stage of life, some of these things um, we've come to see matter um, in, in some really significant ways. And so... Um, Nellie and I have come to do this. We uh, have been married 41 years. I know, I know, really should be applauding her. And uh, we have six kids, three of our own and three that have been grafted in. Um, one of them's here today, actually. Um, uh, she's, she's here. I saw her coming and going. I got a little one-year-old. And um, she's, she's pregnant again, which I think I'm free to talk about. If not, I'm really in, in trouble here. So, I just warn you, if, if you run across somebody that just, you know, looks kind of scary right now, that could be her because uh, she's uh, just in the first end of the first trimester. So we're excited about that. We have, we have four grandkids and, and now one on the way. So, um, but we, Nellie and I have never, I say never, but rarely have we done this before. Um, speaking together puts an unusual tax on a, on a marriage. We're just hopeful we don't contradict each other by anything that we say up here. Um, but what we're going to do is sort of divide and conquer a little bit with what we, uh, what we have to share um, with you today. Um, we want to talk about this concept of finishing better than you start, of, of moving through the finish line, your finish line of life, and being able to carry your soul with you in an, in an intact sort of way. And so we're going to share with you some from our lives and experiences what we've sort of seen to see, be important in relationship to that. And I think maybe it tees up your interest a little bit if I were to tell you that four years ago, Nellie and I were on vacation. We were walking across a parking lot when we got hit by a car. Now, um, I don't know if you've ever seen those, you can find them online if you haven't, the, those accident reports where people write up funny things that happened, you know, like I, I drove home to the wrong house, pulled into a driveway that wasn't mine, hit a tree that didn't belong to me, and that was how, kind of how they wrote up their accident report, or I pulled away from the curb, glanced at my mother-in-law and headed over in the embankment, you know, those kind of things where you just don't exactly say what you're planning on saying. This person that hit us could have said, I saw this sad-faced old gentleman as he bounced off the the hood of my car, because uh, that's, that's what happened to us. And so, 
four years ago, began a, a journey for us, never planned and, and obviously never desired, uh, two broken bones and four surgeries, and um, it has been an interesting uh, test of the state of our soul uh, over these last four years. So perhaps some of that's going to leak in uh, as, we, as we are with you. So Nellie's going to take us to an Old Testament passage we're going to look at, uh, and then I'll come back and, and uh, we'll look at a passage from the New Testament. Uh, our prayer for you is that something that's said will be exactly what God wants for you to hear today. We, we believe that's going to be the case. So, Nellie? Yeah, good morning. Yeah, uh, it is so true. We really don't speak together, and this may be the one and done experience, so you guys can let us know. But it is a privilege, and it's even really fun to share this uh, teaching time with Bobby because um, I have loved being under his preaching all these years. Uh, but there is one exception. I don't love it at home. And so you can understand why. I don't mind it on Sunday, but um, there are, we're going to be looking at Psalm 1. And the great thing about Psalm 1 is there's going to be two different philosophies we're going to look at, the world philosophy, and then we're going to look at God's truth and, and what he says is true. And so I wanted to tell you a little bit about my journey. I accepted Christ when I was four. So, um, and I was very clear that I was a sinner because my uh, siblings said I was. And they continue to do that now. Maybe you have the same siblings as I do. But uh, by the time I was six, and I grew up in a Christian home, uh, church, my dad and I shared the same birthday. And he had a stroke on our birthday and was hospitalized and as a little six-year-old visiting him, he fully recovered. But after that, um, less than a year later, he was out fishing with my brother and uh, had a, a heart attack. And he died that following year. And so life and death for me was so real, especially as a six-year-old. And even though growing up in a Christian home was wonderful, the place that I found the most soul um, reflection and soul thirst was what uh, quenching was through scripture even as a little kid I had my first pink New Testament which was really awesome <laughs> and um, so from there it, scripture has been such an important part and this morning I want to participate with you like in a type of devotional that I would do before work or um, school or for whatever activity you have, if you've never really learned about what devotional life could look like, hopefully you can adapt what we're going to do this morning from Psalm 1. So let me give you a little bit of a background in Psalms. There's 150 of them. They're written by all different types of authors. Mostly you would know King David was uh, one of the main authors, but we have Asaph, we have Solomon wrote a few, and then there's a lot of them we don't even know who the authors are. In fact, the one that we're gonna look today is one that uh, we don't know the author, even though it's the gateway into the 150 uh, Psalms. So let's read Psalm 1 together, and I know it's up here. I'd love for you to read it with me out loud, but um, if you're as old as I am, the print is really small. So I'm going to read it for you. Uh, oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. But not the wicked. 
They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment, and sinners will have no place among the godly. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. Um, it begins with a negative, which is often true in the, um, the poetic books of the Bible, the wisdom books. And they love to use contrast, which we're going to look at this morning, is that they have two extremes that help you understand what the, the author is trying to convey to us. And so you have the wicked, which sounds a tad harsh, and then you have the righteous, that sounds a, a tad holy. But when you look at the whole, you'll begin to see what the writer wants us to learn about the two kingdoms that are represented here. The, the kingdom of the righteous is under God's control, and then the kingdom of the wicked is under Satan's control. And so we'll look at a worldview of what the wicked believe. And again, there's in between, but these are your extremes. The worldview of both and the characteristics of both. So as you look in verses 1, 4, and 5, and half of 6, you learn about the wicked. Their worldview would be something like, I believe in God or I may not. But my compass, where I really believe is what's true and what's not true, comes from me. I'm kind of the author of what I believe in my system. And you're going to collect all kinds of things from your environment around you. And so that's going to be changing because culture changes, your experience changes as you get older. And I know that for sure. And um, just the norms change. So this worldview of the, of the wicked or those who do not take God's word as, as it stands is always subject for change, even though there's always remedies to soul um, strength and soul quenching. It's going to change. The other thing about um, the characteristics of the worldview is that I develop my philosophy as I go. So just as I had talked about the experience, and each person is in control of their life, whereas those who are righteous believe that God is in control, this is you decide your destiny. And especially in the Silicon Valley, right? We don't like to have only one or two paths. We want to have choices upon choices. But the idea of the worldview for the wicked is that they can determine whatever they want. They are, I did it my way. And their destiny, the Bible says, is to destruction and leads to hell eventually. And we know that Satan, when he was before God and was thrown out of heaven, it was because he said, I want to be like you. I want to control the kingdom that I want to build. So that characterizes the wicked. So the other extreme is the righteous, and they are not like that. So the verses 2, 3, and 6, which we had read up here, they, their worldview is, I believe in God. They're not just taking some pieces here and there, but they really believe that God is ultimately the supreme being over all things. He even is over Satan's kingdom. He has all power. He knows all things. So um, they're going to respond to what God has already pursued in them. They're going to respond and going, I want to follow you. I want to serve you with my life, with my heart. They go join in worship like we're doing today and praying for one another, building one another up. That kingdom is held by God himself. And the destiny the Bible says, for the righteous, is heaven, to be with him in eternity. So that's the worldview. In verse 2, we look at um, where they um, 
meditate on his law day and night. There's this constant um, reviewing of scripture. And remember, the Old Testament believer did not have the full 66 books of the Bible that we do. They had the Torah and a few other books, but they studied that and they meditated on it. So that was a really an important part of their life. And then you have um, in uh, that daily time for us that we get all 66 books, we can enjoy how seeing, uh, seeing the picture of Christ all through the Old Testament being presented and then he comes and his death and resurrection. So we really get to, to view the whole thing of his love letter to us. And one of the things about daily time with God, if it's frequent, it's, at least if it's frequent, it really gives you a wonderful opportunity to get your soul filled with his truth and understanding of how do I react in our world, what do I need to do, and it's this intimacy of that relationship that's back and forth. And one of the things that's great about the Psalms is it's all about man communicating with God. And there's so many different emotions. There's anger, there's frustration, there's um, slander, there's murder, there's, <laughs> there's um, lament, deep lament. And you are changed by your time with God in his word. Not that your circumstance changes, but you change. You change in the fact that you've spent time with God. And that's what I love about the Psalms. So I hope this really wep, uh, whets your appetite to search more of the Psalms because it's a wonderful, honest, vulnerable um, dialogue with God. So then we go to um, uh, verse 3. And, it's, and I love the imagery here. Here's a, a tree, and Israel is very arid. It has... Um, drought, and uh, it's a little bit deserty, it, not so unlike California, but it, um, it was pragmatic to, to plant trees that were near streams of living water, right? So when the drought does come, and it will come, the roots will go deep down into the soil and will find another underground uh, stream that it can find its nourishment. So I love that. When you think about when the storms come, that this tree goes down deeply, its, its leaves don't wither, it's, um, it prospers in everything it does, and it bears fruit. And that's what the Christian life can be like, because we know that we're going to be hit by storms. But where are our roots? And I was wondering for you this morning, when you think about if you were like a tree, what would your leaves look like? Would they be withered? Would they be flourishing? No matter where you are, you can have that sense that spending time with the Lord, you will be changed. And again, the, the psalm is so wonderful because you start one place, but you end in praise. Because it's not about your circumstance. It's about who you are and your time spent with God and God alone. So in verse 6, it goes on, and this is a wonderful part. The way of the righteous, they are certain that God is watching over them. They're, they feel really confident that God loves them. Even though I always thought an identity crisis happened in junior high only, I still have identity crises, right? Where I get really insecure and I think, does God really love me? He's not going to show up this one time. I just know he's not going to show up. And when I read God's word and I'm reaffirmed, my soul is connected to what uh, is true about God and true about me. That's what I love. And so you as a believer can know it and that you belong to him and that he fully knows you and loves you. So in conclusion of Psalm 1, 
you're going to have storms and you're going to have difficulties, as we all do. And it's not just about the Super Bowl. But hopefully my team will win. But you will experience times when you just need to hear God and see God. And again, you have the kingdom of the wicked that it sounds extreme and the kingdom of God. You do get to choose which kingdom you want to be a, a part of. You get to choose whom you want to serve. One is about deception and change, and it has to change because deceit changes, right? So you have God's kingdom. He's always the same. His truth is forever and everlasting. And I love that I, I am a follower of Christ, even though I blow it a lot. I love being his, his child. And that is my prayer for you today, that you would fall in love with Jesus or ask one of us if you are new to this journey of faith. Uh, we'd love to answer any of your questions. So Bobby's going to take you to the New Testament, but um, thank you for listening to the Old Testament with me. Thanks, Nellie. And, and I just want to say, I didn't plan on this, but um, that value that, that uh, you just heard Nellie talk about is truly a value that has um, sort of been sort of led by her in our home. You know, I may get up and talk to a few hundred people on a, on a weekend, but Nellie was consistently reading scripture to our kids and consistently spending that time and letting that holy habit of God's word get into their lives and in, into our home. And so I'm so grateful for that. Um, yeah, so that, if I'm doing the math right, that's, that's four kind of holy habits for us to consider. Sabbath, quiet, solitude, and now that sense of being in God's word, letting God's word be in us, reading it, but letting it read us as well alongside the work that the Spirit uh, does in our lives. What I think I would like to do is share a bit out of our experience of, of, of decades of, of seeking to follow Christ, seeking to care for our soul. And if I guess if those have been four holy habits, I think I'm going to, I'll try this, four, four holy hacks for you to consider as you, as you try to live this life. And I think it comes uh, out of Hebrews uh, a book in the, in, the, in the New Testament makes this book kind of unique is that we don't know who wrote it. Um, we're pretty certain on most books of the Bible who wrote them, but we don't know um, what woman or man wrote this particular one, which is just a little bit fascinating. Uh, so let me read it for you. It begins with therefore. You've probably heard in your English classes, if the word therefore is there, you want to ask what it's there for. So it kind of points you back typically. So therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. <clears throat> this idea of running a race is very prominent in the New Testament a lot, and it, and it talks about this idea of, of finishing well, of getting across the finish line and not just sort of limping there, but <clears throat> having the stamina uh, which will include paying attention to the state of our soul and carrying that soul with us across the, across the finish line. 
So I, I want to see if I can um, point you in four directions to consider today. And generally when this something that is this intimate of the things that we'll talk about, there's going to be likely one of these that is going to stand out more prominently for you. It, it may very well be that God has just, just one of these for you to look at in your life right now. But let's, let's look at them real quickly in the moments we have less, left. The first I see in the verse, very first verse where it says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. I'd suggest to you the essential nature of approaching our lives, understanding how important it is that we live with a repaired past. That this isn't just talking about sin and behaviors that slow us down. I mean, it includes that, and we're going to see sin gets called out in, in just a moment. This is actually, I think, broader than that. It, it, it's events and, and experiences in our past that so inform the present and, and even influence the present because they've not been put away. They've not been sufficiently sort of looked at and packed away. Life is much less what happens to us and much more how we find ourselves affected in responding to what happens to us. Things that capture our minds and they, and they won't let go. And we can live our lives sort of dragging these things with us and it has an impact on our soul. So at, at the risk of getting into uh, deeper water than, than I can swim in, I just want to give you four words to consider as essentials to packing away your past. Here's the first one. Forgiveness. People do things to us. Uh, people hurt us, sometimes in some um, unbelievably destructive ways. And if we're not careful, we can sort of carry that as sort of our badge and our banner throughout our lives. And Scripture makes it clear. That doesn't let keep them on the hook. That just keeps our own souls on the hook. So learning to forgive. The second is repentance, and that's just simply the other side of it, is recognizing as you live your life, I do things to people. I hurt people. It's looking at the deep darkness of my own soul and being able to understand that. A third essential word, again, these are all throughout Scripture, is the word gratitude. Being able to, to live your life with a disciplined sense of gratitude and thankfulness and appreciation. It's a way to unburden the soul, to spend some time thinking about just what you have to be grateful for in relationships and in, your, in the goodness of God in your life. And the fourth, I just call a wisdom acquisition. And here's what I mean by that. That is a spiritual, if you will, a situational awareness of learning to ask yourself as you go through life, what does this situation actually mean? What is, this, what is, the, what is the lesson that can be contained, that is contained in this, that can be learned by me? Demanding from every experience in life what its meaning is. If we can learn to practice this forgiveness and repentance and gratitude and wisdom acquisition, I think we do a better job of sort of sorting our past and putting it where it needs to be. That's the first hack. The next one maybe might not go down as easily. I'm going to call it self-mastery, even though that sounds a lot like self-help. 
That's not what I mean. Self-mastery, I think, is found as well in the verse 1 of chapter 12. Let us strip off the sin that so easily trips us up. It's addressing life with a sense of responsibility and a sense of mastery of, of your one and only life. Living with discipline applied to your life. This is not legalism. As Daniel said in these previous weeks, it's not earning God's favor with you. We, we, we can't add anything to God's love. We can't take anything away from His love. But we get to join Him in what He's doing. And this discipline is that process of joining Him in and focusing as we're supposed to in our lives. You see it in athletes. Steph Curry, 300 shots after practice every time because he wants to be able to, to, to bring the fullness out of his life and the gifts that he's been given. So discipline is intentional suffering, right? It's making the mind, the body do things that by instinct they would not do. I wrestled in college, and, and our, our college wrestling coach had this... Um, very evil thing that he would wrap up a lot of practices with, and it was called the circle of pain. And we would wrap, we would circle the the wrestling room, and then our coach would choose one guy to come out at a time, and put him in the middle, and then he would point to somebody's on the outskirts, and they would come in and they'd wrestle, and then he'd blow his whistle, and the guy that was had come in from the side would go back, but the one guy would stay, and another fresh guy would come in and wrestle on him. And the, and the coach, I'm not sure how he determined what it was, but from, my, from where I stood, he let that go until there was just sort of this breaking that would happen, that person that was in the middle. The best of wrestlers, you could see him in just a very few minutes, you'd see him just dissolved in, in, into tears because of just this the process of life coming at him so hard. And I remember when it was my turn to go out there, I would just cry right away, and it made it a lot quicker to kind of get, get through this. But he called that the circle of pain. And, and he would say that my goal as a coach is to make practice as painful as possible so that when you participate and compete, it can be as enjoyable as possible. That's, that's that idea of creating that kind of space. It's, it's not just discipline for discipline's sake. It's purposeful. So when we think about our bodies, when we... Think about the rest they need and caring for them and what we eat. That's, that's an application of this. It's important. We think about our minds, rigorous learning, making sure you're around people who think differently than you or, or think better than, than you. Relationally, learning to discipline yourself and follow through with your word in relationships. Your ego, letting yourself be right-sized enough. Your money. Your emotions, people are going to hurt and disappoint you. You see, it begins in the most interior place of all. That's our will. And then it moves out into choices that we make, and that's sort of the discipline. And discipline will turn into habits, and then habits ultimately will form a character and, and will form a, a, a protection for the soul. Henry Nouwen says that the effort to create some space in which God can act, that's what discipline is. Just creating that space. A third hack, a third essential. I'm going to call it a rigorous street faith. We haven't even left verse 1 yet. A huge cloud of witnesses. It refers to this, it's a, it's a sport, scene, sport scene it's describing, an amphitheater, where the stands are full and they're watching you live your life, me live my life, and 
and, and care for our soul, and they're, they're paying attention. And, and the witnesses who fills the stands are actually in chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is sometimes called the, the Faith Hall of Fame, because you read through there, and you read about people like Noah, and we kind of know his story pretty well. We read about Abraham, and you, you read about Joseph, and Moses, and, and Rahab, as they tried to live their lives, care for their souls, and what is interesting to me in that description of all these people that are now in the stands watching us live our one and only life, what it says about them in verse 13 of Hebrews 11 is this. They were still living by faith when they died. And part of what that means is that they had not fully received everything they hoped to receive. They had not lived out and experienced all of the results that they hoped to experience, and yet they continued to live this life of faith. You see, the challenge for us is to cultivate the kind of faith that's a street faith and not a fantasy faith. The kind of faith that works out there, not just when we're in here singing these wonderful songs and hearing each other worship together, but a faith that can take us into our relationships and our place of work and can still show up there in the midst of the mess of the life that we live most of the time. I got to go watch the Indy 500 uh, a few years ago. Got to be there for, for uh, carb day, and then I also got to be down um, on the track when they did the pit crew competition. So you got to watch these. They, they, they would see how quick a car could come in and, and have the pit crew turn them around before they went back out onto the track. And then they gave, I think it was 14.8 seconds is, is what they consider a pretty, good, a pretty good pit stop. And I thought, that's important to the race. Coming to church is important to the race. But the race is out there. The race is one on the track, not in the, not in the pit. And that's what is being pointed to. There are people who have gone before us, and maybe you have family members who have as well, and they've lived this life, and now they're, in a sense, observing, and they're wanting for us this same sort of faith that, that works out in the street. Finally, I'll conclude with this one. Still in verse 1, we read these words. We are surrounded by. Okay, so there's referring to these um, people who are there. And what I, th- what I think the writer is trying to get us to see there is the value of a constellation of people in our lives. The value as we seek to live our one and only lives of, of a, a, a community, a, a personal community. A person who finishes better than they start will ultimately have a group of people that are in their lives doing this journey with them. You say, I got that. I'm married. So I got that person. Or I'm going to be married. Let me tell you, as one who is is married and has considered this, intimacy and community that I need is much larger than what Nellie can do for me, much larger than what a marriage can do. We need to learn to fly in this tighter formation of mutual support and accountability. Um, This is not over and above our faith. It's an essential to to our walk. Harvard just came out with a study um, that people who live in closer relationships, they determine delay mental and physical decline in their lives and register it as the single greatest contributor to lifelong happiness. 
allowing other people into your journey with you. A constellation, not one person to rescue, but a number of people to walk alongside you who can ask you questions. It's a powerful thing to be able to offer grace to someone else and to be able to receive grace back from them. Powerful thing to our journey. I appreciate um, many things about your pastor. One of the things is his authenticity. And he shared at the very beginning of this uh, series just that, that moment where life kind of just crashed in on him, where there was a emptying out, if you will, of the, the soul. And, um, and I, I want to say to you, I, without going into detail, I've got several of those in the 40 years of, of church ministry, and I don't think pastors have a have a corner on that dynamic. You see, I think our lives, generally speaking, and early on, we're, we have this engine that seems to run okay on the fuel of our insecurities, our ambitions, our gifts, our talents, our personalities. It seems to do okay. But at some point in our life, through circumstances, staying with analogy, a different engine gets dropped in. And if we continue to try to run on that same fuel, uh, we're going to find eventually uh, the kind of breakdown that many of us have experienced in our lives. I encourage you to consider one of these, or maybe all four, to go to war over in, in your life. Let me, let me get us back to verse 2 and 3 for just a second. I think this is the best place to land. It says, the writer says, we do this, this being running with endurance, finishing well. We, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, by considering him. Now, I do think that means by looking at his model. I think that's included. But I don't think it's just that. I think this is actually pointing us to begin with the end in mind, to think about what it really means to be in an eternal relationship with God through Jesus. There was an experience that highly impacted me as a young boy. Our family visited Washington, D.C., and we went to the Arlington National Cemetery, and we were watching the changing of the guard at the, 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 um, that, that is there, and I was moved by its solemnity and, and, and its precision. Uh, and so I've watched it several times since, because I find it, I'm not sure I know why completely, but I, I find it uh, really moving. And, and recently, I saw something unique. Uh, that happened when I watched it not too long ago. Um, the soldier who was in charge of, of doing it, who was finishing his shift, the changing of the guard, um, was, compel- was completed. The, the, the commanding officer who showed up at the moment encouraged everybody to stay. And then Sergeant Jennings, who was completing now 27 months of his duty uh, there as, a, as one who would stand guard, um, wanted to pay a special respect as this was now his last time he would be uh, doing it. And so his family was escorted in to a place of honor, and the commanding officer handed Sergeant Jennings four roses. And he uh, approached the great tomb of the unknown soldiers from the First World War, and he, he laid it there, and then from the Second, and then from Korean War, and then from the Vietnam War. And he, he, he knelt and sort of... Um, patted the rose on, on each uh, tomb, and then he returned to his commanding officer. They locked eyes. They s- saluted one another, and then he, he took off his gloves, 
and he uh, laid them in the palms of his commanding officers. He turned and greeted his family, and, and he walked away. And I can, I'm not sure why I was so moved by that, except for this aspect, that I, I, th I think about that as an ending point in my life someday. It won't be a commanding officer that I'll stand before. It'll be my Savior. And I'll come to that finish line And we'll lock eyes. I'll fix my eyes on Jesus, this time literally. And I'll, I'll hand him my soul. And I'll hand him my life. No one's going to do for our soul uh, what only we can do. My encouragement for you is, is not to live under the weight of everything you've heard, but take the next step of faithfulness uh, in one of these things that you believe God is, is pointing you in. I'd love the privilege of praying for you right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I'm grateful for this kingdom outpost that you are um, building here at Eden, for this family that is um, learning to love you and to love one another. God, I continue to pray that your, your care and your well-being would be over this church at large and, and in, in total. But God, I pray as is your heart for individuals in this room that are part of the ministry of this place, that all of us would come to a, a deeper understanding of your great love for us in Jesus and the invitation to join you in what you can and will do in our hearts and our lives. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.